You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 30, The Butterfly Ball, part three, the album. And coming to you from the construction-drenched suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island, <laughs> I had nothing, I had nothing, um, <laughs> John, Rhode Island Red Matola. Oh, he yes. dropped the Rhode Island Red. Boom. And do you know what the state bird is? The Rhode Island Red Hen. The Rhode Island Red Hen. And the I have state an, bird. I have an extraordinary chicken's uh, calendar. Yeah. <laughs> and every month I turn it over hoping I'm going to see, and I know Rhode Island Red. Uh, the Rhode Island Red became our official state bird May 3rd, 1954. Not very Oh, it's long recent. Ago. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, just the other day in 1954. <laughs> I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> it was, yeah, but recent being like, you know, maybe you th- we thought it might could have been the state bird in like 18-something. I thought I would have thought like the 1700s or something. But we've been teasing <clears throat> the state bird for, for, for at least two months now. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you can tell neither of us had anything planned for the... Uh, for the intro this morning. Um, they've nope. been doing... Uh, they just the started... Construction drenched... <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the hell does that even mean? But um, they're doing my roof, so they've been working on my roof all day. And ah. you know, the daylight savings was yesterday, and the guys are up there, so it's it's pitch black here at four thirty, and like five thirty, I'm still hanging, hearing banging, and I'm like, is somebody gonna fall off the roof and die? Like, what is going on? <laughs> like, they're still up there, and the, yeah. they said they're gonna come back tomorrow to finish it. But I was really worried. Like, I didn't think they'd be working that that late. Yeah, we've had uh, construction around here, too, like, as we've discussed, and, like, uh, it's mostly wrapped up, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's weird just seeing, like, people still walking around. I'm just like, oh, it's so late, and I'm like, oh, no, wait, it's only five, you know, <laughs> and some nights, like, you know, make even a few weeks ago, they'd be working till, like, 6, 6.30, even 7 sometimes because, you know, they got to wrap this up. Yeah. Before, uh, you know, it gets cold, which we're predicted for a little bit of snow here this week. We got a lot bit of snow this week. I mean, it was it snowed at, on Halloween. Basically, we were uh, it was freezing cold. There was three inches of snow on the ground, but we still <coughs> went out and did the trick or treating. Well, well, of course, you know, your kids weren't letting you off that easy. No, not at all. It was <laughs> yeah, it was quite a night, but we had fun. Great. And, uh, you know. So now we're getting our roof done finally from a, a hailstorm we had back in May damaged our roof. And the, the good news is our roof was super old and needed to be replaced anyway. And the even better news is uh, since it was a hailstorm, the insurance people came out and they're like, yep, you got to well, it's completely covered by your insurance. So we're getting a completely new roof and new uh, leaf system and everything. Yeah, so I was like, wow, I'm glad that the hailstorm came when it did because we'd probably have to replace it in the next couple of years and it's going to save us, uh, I don't know, $20,000 or whatever. Wow, right now all of our listeners over 40 are like, awesome. All of our listeners <laughs> under 40 are just like these 
freaking old guys. <laughs> well, luckily we're, we have a podcast about deep purple, so <laughs> it's not probably a ton of younger. Yeah, anyone younger than 40 is going to be like, what the hell? But yeah, you're right. Wow, this is what we're going to get excited about in another 10, 15 years. Right? <laughs> oh, it's covered by insurance. Like, yes. Oh, no roof. Oh. <laughs> They're going to be disappointed when we start talking about um, butterfly ball. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, talk more about your roof. <laughs> well, hey, we were in our 20s when we got into butterfly ball, right? This so, is true. And we, we we probably would not have enjoyed this part of the conversation. But speaking no. of this part of the conversation, if you're enjoying the Deep Purple podcast, if we bring you some sort of joy, if you listen to us on your commute and you get some value from it, please give us some value back and become a patron on Patreon. Donate as little as $1 a month. We'd really, really appreciate that. And also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a review <clears throat> on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you like about the show. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, speaking of Patreon, I want to thank our patrons. We've got Clay Wambacher and Steve Seaborg of NameOnAnything.com and AllTheWorldsOfStage.net, the $5 tier. Peter Gardot at the $3 tier. And then our friends Els Murders and Spacey Noodles coming in at the $1 tier. And then a big thanks to our brethren at the deep dive podcast network sabbath bloody podcast skinnered reconsidered and the chairman t-bone mathley thank you for all your help and then it wouldn't be the deep purple podcast without the patron saint and archivist of the deep purple podcast yorg planer providing us with all sorts of first-hand accounts of the band and dates and all that sort of stuff we couldn't do it without him he's he's an essential he's the essential he's our uh unofficial I don't know, researcher, I guess you will. Yeah, archivist. Uh, archivist, you know, unpaid intern, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff on on Twitter too. I like his um, what is it, Coverdale Daily or maybe yeah. Coverdale or something he like pa- uh, really. Basically, what was Coverdale up to at this day? Um, yeah, that's, he, that's he sent me a cool. really awesome uh, video of Harden in York on German TV in the 1970s. He sent me that. Uh, I think it was this morning, and that was re- so. I watched that whole video. It was about twenty minute video. It was great. That's, that was an amazing band. Just the two of them, Harden on key- keyboards, on organ, really, and vocals, and then York on drums. And then every so often, uh, Harden will come over and do some percussion, like like Ian Gillen does or something. And you know, they were kind of like the white stripes of their day. Just two people, mm-hmm. a two person band who just rocked really hard, and uh, yeah, really great stuff. Mm. <clears throat> oh, anyway, I don't really have money updates or anything. I just wanted to kind of save it for the album today. We, we not a ton of stuff going on on social media. Um, wanted to just dive right into the album, right into the songs. With just a little bit of a of a lead up going into it. But I guess, uh, do you remember what your first exposure to the Butterfly Ball was? Like, how did how did you hear about it? Um. You know, I I really wish that I did. I was like thinking about <laughs> it. Um, I mean, obviously got into it by, you know, knowing that it was a like a Roger Glover project. I mean, as you know, we all know that the reason we got into anything Deep Purple related was is because somebody from Deep Purple was involved. Um, I can't even remember. Like, I mean, I certainly didn't know that there was a movie. Um, I know that not until later, but so I must've known that there was an album and I don't even think I knew who was on the album. Mm. Um, like, um, no, man, I was like, I'm trying to think about, it. I know I got the CD later. Like, I feel like I must've gotten on, on cassette or something. Well, first. well, you couldn't get the CD. It wasn't available. 
<clears throat> in not no. at least not in America. And I learned about it from you. And yeah, so I remember just, you just trying to being in your bedroom and you playing me like uh, a clip. It must have been. I think it was sitting in a dream and saying, this is Ronnie James Dio. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And yeah. then you played Watch Out for the Bat, I think, and just kind of being blown away and wanted to learn more. And you had this like old cassette of it. Yeah, and so it must have. We looked for years to get that. It wasn't, it wasn't until many years later that the DVD made its. And the only way I think I've talked about it on the show, the only reason I got it is because my parents were going. They went on for their, like, I think 25th wedding anniversary. They went to Europe and yeah. said, do you want it to, us to bring you anything back? I said, yes. When you're in <laughs> London, <laughs> go to a record store and see if you can find uh, the butterfly ball. And they did. And it's this wow. one, this one right here. The whoop, it, Yeah. You know what? That was, that was the one I got in an import store probably around the, when was that? Like when we were, what, was, we were in our twenties, right? No, well, I, I was, I think I was a teenager when we finally so, got this. Because I, I remember getting that one, but I think I got it in either an import store or it was one of those like import catalogs because I had sent away for imports too. Um, but I remember just thinking like, oh, great. Like, because I was, you know, when I was finally converting over to CDs, when I, when I gave in, um, <laughs> And I saw that I'm like, oh, there's a clean copy. And then there was like, you know, Little Chalk Blue, the new song, you know, yes. and everything. And I'm just like, oh, and it was the Wizards convention, which I feel like it like that part of it wasn't the the, you know, initially part of like whatever, you know, the first music I owned was. So basically it was just like, oh, wow, it's like full of bonuses. Yeah. Like, does, it, does it, it, say- it came with six. Yeah, it came with the Little Chalk Blue that wasn't on the cassette we had originally. And then it came yeah. with five tracks from the Wizards. I'm uh, sorry, six tracks from the Wizards convention, which I, w- I had at that point never heard of. Yeah, and that's I mean, what got us kind of into the Wizards convention saying, oh, well, these are cool. There's there's a whole album. Let, like, let's check that yeah. out. But I think that that's um, I feel like that might have been my first exposure to just like, wow, like Glenn Hughes and Coverdale and Ronnie and you know, Roger Glover and just all these different people like work together. Like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of, I think, got me into the whole concept of Deep Purple being like a family, you know, like everybody's mm-hmm. just always running into each other and working on projects together type of thing. And, um, but to pinpoint like how I heard about it, it could have been through just like maybe the, the newsletters or, you know, magazines, import catalogs yeah. or whatever that I was reading and just like somehow being just intrigued by getting my hands on every single thing that Deep Purple did, just kind of like how I did with any band that I was obsessed with, like, um, you know, kiss and everything else. Like, no, what there, that person's on it. Give me, I want it. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, and obviously you remember how you got into it because I was, I guess it was my influence. It, so yeah, it certainly was. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure given my knowledge of deep purple a few years down the road, I would have bumped into it occasion eventually, but I, I remember sure. just, you know, like so many things when you're really young, just sitting in a, in a room, cross-legged on the floor and you put this new this new song on i remember so many experiences like that like my first exposure my cousin robbie playing uh master of puppets for me for the first time i ever heard metallica and just being like whoa and and then Uh you know same thing with kind of like this just this first this entrance into a whole new world where i just like i was like wow this is like the album that i've i've wanted my whole life but i didn't realize i did you know yeah so (laughs) 
Anyway, getting into this album. So um, it was produced at Kingsway Recorders, which is the studio that Ian Gillen had purchased after leaving Deep Purple, previously Delane Lay Studios. Um, just some quick uh, credits on this. It's interesting. Um, the artwork for the album, which I can pull up right here, was obviously done by Alan Aldridge. It's, it looks just like the artwork for um, the artwork for the book. It's very uh, much based on that. And the part of the design was done by Harry Wilcock, uh, whose credits, who, who also worked with. Alan Aldridge on doing Elton John's Captain Fantastic album, which is an Alan Aldridge designed album. And he also did the album cover for the Judy Dench version of the Butterfly Ball, which is kind of a funny, uh, <laughs> funny sort of thing. So I, um, I got, I, I found this record off of eBay and I, I, I just got it in. I just listened to it for the first time today. Actually, it's actually pretty good, but it stays a little truer to the book. It actually, somebody it's Judy Dench and, and, and another guy reading the, actual poems from uh, the book and there's music behind it and there's some songs and stuff. So it's actually pretty good. It, it doesn't seem like a wild departure from this butterfly ball musically. Although I've found like there's a group of people online who hate the Roger Glover one. They're like, Oh no, it's gotta be the Judy Dench version. Or, um, it's <laughs> like a weird argument. To I know. Have. And this is something I really had not heard of this until <laughs> I only heard about this, I think, maybe a couple of months ago when I was looking on eBay and found this. It looks just like this, but it's got like a more like a ivory sort of colored background instead of the brown background. Um, and the interesting part of this is uh, Gordon, we talked about the Peacock Party, the the anonymous sequel to the Butterfly Ball. So mm -hmm. this guy, Gordon Giltrap, did an album about the Peacock Party so kind of like a weird sort of sequel, but it's kind of more, it has the same music from the Judy Dench version. So it's a sequel of that. And interestingly enough, who plays bass on that, but John Gustafson. <laughs> so there's a tie between this one and the, the weird uh, Judy Dench one that I'd never heard of before. Wow. So it is, it's, if you're interested in this sort of stuff, it's worth checking out. Um, if you're mostly just sticking around for deep purple, you could maybe give it a pass, but I find it interesting. Um, so there's a few engineers, George Sloan, Lou Austin, and Chaz Watkins were engineers for this album. And it was mastered by somebody named um, either, he has a couple of nicknames, Pecco and Porky, <laughs> but his real name is George Peckham. So <laughs> Porky? I, I find that he gets, yeah, he gets credited at least on Discogs as Pecco or Porky. Just, just those one name. And then, but his real name is George Peckham. Uh, so um, Eddie Harden at the time was currently working with the Spencer Davis group and he knew Glover he, the, the connection with Harden was that he knew Glover from when Harden in York opened for Deep Purple in 1971 so I guess it would have been during the Fireball tour and then um, the rest of the band is kind of filled out as we talked about before by basically Fancy Ray Fenwick, Mo Foster and Les Binks ah good old Sausage Fingers oh, yeah, we're going to hear from him shortly <laughs> So, so that's it. Um, interesting in the album and the gatefold. Oh, actually, I should. I'm sorry. I should put up the gatefold real quick just to. So the gatefold for the album has illustrations from the book, and and each song it will say the name of the song, and then it says like 
uh, so it says the first song is Dawn and it says Roger Glover on synthesizer. And then it says the song Get Ready and it says Glenn Hughes sings the part of Harold the Herald arranged by and conducted by Martin Ford and John Bell. So it kind of says who's singing, what character they are being, and then who arranged and conducted if there's any sort of orchestral stuff. So I'll just give a quick lead into each song with one of those. Um, not that it, I don't, I don't know that it's super important, but just kind of give you a, a sum because it is sort of a story being told by this, although it's not super, yeah. it's not super well tied together. I was always just really into it for the songs. Yeah, but I mean, it's um, if we're gonna we're gonna do the butterfly ball, may as well go all in. We so. got to do it right. So um, let's kick it off with the opening here, which is very low-key sort of uh, instrumental it's called dawn and as advertised this is roger glover on synthesizer and they're trying to create a mood here this is just kind of the sun rising in the forest I always thought it sounded a little creepy at the beginning. Yeah, the beginning definitely does. All that early 70s synth stuff can sound creepy pretty easily. <laughs> I always imagine that part. That's like the the, the sun breaking the, the horizon yeah. and it goes from like a minor to like a major chord when the sun peaks up. Yeah, and immediately the mood changes. All the sleepy animals waking up for the day. And if you've never listened to the butterfly ball before, you're probably like, what the hell is going on? So, uh, uh that's it. It's not <laughs> nothing much to really go over there. It's it's you know it's obviously just setting the stage for the first song. It it honestly could just be considered the intro to the song we're about to hear, the first song on the album. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's pretty. It's not not much to talk about. I do have our our rankings sheet out. I was almost considering should we do a Captain Beyond style. Uh, playing three song sections or whatever. But then when I listen, I kind of listened and I was like, you know, we'd probably pretty much have to play start to finish the entire album because every song, yeah, almost every song time. blends into the next one. It would just be too confusing. Yeah. So um, that that's a, that's a weird song to, to rate, to start off the album. Yeah, but I know. Uh, I mean, pers- I, you can go first if you want, but I was personally just going to give it a three. Cause it's like, what, what can you say about it? It's yeah, me too. I mean, it's like it, it, it it's a, like an a effective little intro, you know. I mean, it's um, I guess. <coughs> excuse me. If it were, I don't know. If it was a little more, I don't know. If there was something different about it, like if it had some kind of majestic quality or something like really outstanding, like if maybe the whole concept of the album was different, then maybe I'd feel differently. But I mean, this is just kind of like a little. Just intro. So, yeah, I think a three is appropriate. Yeah, there's not much to be said. I mean, it, it's perfect. It serves its its uh, it serves Oops. its course. You yeah. just rated Harlequin hair. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> My bad. 
yeah, it, it serves it serves the perfect purpose for what it's trying to do. Um, but there's not a, a heck of a lot to be said about it. All right, so that sets the stage. It goes right into the next song, which is the song Get Ready, which is sung by Glenn Hughes, who sings the part of Harold the Herald, which I already said. Um, it's based on the poem Harold the Herald from the book. A lot of... Some of the songs will match up. The title of the song will match up perfectly with the poem from the book. Some of them is a little looser than others. So it's sung by Glenn Hughes. It's based on the poem Harold the Herald. And this is basically, you know, the sun comes up, the dawn, the, the dawn happens, and Harold the Herald jumps up and is like announcing to everybody, hey, get ready, suckers. We're about to have a ball. <laughs> <laughs> to all the animals. It's kind of weird, right? Um but again, it's, you know, it's a kid book, but um, here's uh, here comes Glenn about to wake up all the animals. Kind of herald the herald. You've got these like kind of trumpets heralding all the animals in kind of like that effect. I like how it fades in when it was like dun 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 dun. Yeah. It was really like rocking. And Glenn Hughes is being Glenn Hughes. I love the bass groove over here and like, like his performance, his vocals. This is perfect Glenn Hughes being reined in. <laughs> it works really well. Yeah. And the bass right there is awesome. It's a Mo Foster bass going on right there. <laughs> Old sausage Is that fingers. Mo? That's Mo, yeah. I love the bass on this track. Yeah, the bass on the whole album's incredible. Especially here. It's just a nice little yeah. groove. Glenn Hughes just belts it out. I love it. Yeah, listen to that bass. And then, whoop. Oh, that <laughs> was... It's it's not that abrupt if you're listening to the album. Obviously, this just blends yeah. right into the next <laughs> song. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's funny. It's hearing Glenn Hughes sing bats and badgers, gnats and gadflies, water boat men wake up for the greatest day of all ants and door ants and dormice, open your eyes mobilize now (laughs) (laughs) and you just, I I don't think I ever really realized those were the lyrics until like weeks ago because you're just listening to Glenn Hughes just belt it out and you're like yeah you can't really tell exactly what he's saying it's it's just kind of funny because he 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 didn't phone it in at all. He just gives an amazing performance. Yeah, I I agree. I think uh, like you said, it's the perfect 
one of the perfect examples of him being reined in. He doesn't have a <laughs> a ton of effects on his vocals. He's not going all over the place. He's he's sounding good. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a great a, song for him. He's not putting like a like a like a, a three minute instrumental break in the middle of the song. You know, and this is. I think the longest song of this album is four minutes, but mo- I'd, I'd say if you average them together, they've got to be an average of two minutes yeah. each. And that's right on the two minute mark. Um, but, um, but I mean, I like it. I mean, like I said, I love, uh, I love sausage fingers, bass groove in there. And oh, it's um, great. And um, the, you know, there's a little like dynamics to the song too, you know, where the, the, the verse stops and then the drums come in, they do the, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, so there's like some dynamics and it's not like the whole song is just not over the top. It's like, it's just right. And if you don't listen to what the lyrics are about, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I feel like every song on this album leaves you wanting more, you know? And when we get to the out, al- when we get to the musical performance, uh, at Royal Albert Hall, they do do add a little, uh, some extended jams into it. Not like crazy, like, Grateful Dead jams or anything, but but they do add some, you know, two two minute little funk funky jams in the middle, which really add a lot to the songs. But on the album, it's really kind of just to the point and moves mm-hmm. right along. So uh what do you think about Get Ready? Well, a call to a call to arms. <laughs> <laughs> it's a call to arms for all the animals. Um yeah. So um yeah, that one's that one's like really good. I like like three and a half for sure. I give it a four. Um, I will warn you. I, I do, you, do you remember years ago when the, the gas prices were really, really going up? Yeah. And the thing in the news was like, oh, all the gas stations are ordering fives because the, the gas price is going to go over $5 and none of them have the big fives. They only have the small fives for the cents. Oh, the gas stations are ordering fives because they don't have any of them. And it's like it was like designed to just scare everybody about the gas prices. Well, I, I had to order some fives going into today. I'm just going to warn you up front. <laughs> There's going to be some fives for sure. Um, but yeah, that one, that one, I think is just a good solid kind of opener to the album. I think I'm getting some Alzheimer's here. Do we go up to five for ratings? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was thinking about that. I'm like, wait, should I give this a four or five? I'm going to change mine then to like a four because I was, I was going to be a little stingy, but I'm going to, I'm going to change it to a four too, because I, I enjoy that. Not, I enjoy it four. I don't enjoy it five. I thought you were going to say, oh, are we going up to 10? Because I, I gave it a 3.5 out of 10. <laughs> no, 3.5. I was like, I forgot if it was four or five. We haven't, well, we haven't rated anything in like a while. And uh, yeah, it's been a, it's so. been a few weeks since we did like a proper rating. So yeah, we're all out of practice. Yeah. Um, so four, uh, four butterfly wings. <laughs> the next song is called Saffron Dormouse and Lizzie B. And this is Helen, Helen Chappelle, who did that video love song that we listened to video, video love. <laughs> <laughs> She's uh Saffron Dormouse and then Barry St. John. Who did the uh, what? What song did she do? Um, cry like a cry like a baby. Um, she's playing the part of Lizzie, and this is arranged and conducted by Mike Moran. Um, this is based on the poem of the same name. Uh, well, there's actually two poems. There's one poem called Mrs. Dormouse, and there's another poem, poem called Lizzie B. And I guess he combined them into two. And it's uh, yeah, it's sung by Helen Chappelle and Barry St. John. And it kind of like tells the story. Um, this is the only song on the album, surprisingly, considering it's kind of like a 
sort of a makeshift rock opera where there's two singers doing kind of a back and forth. Mm. And um, it's kind of the Saffron Dormouse is like doing chores, basically. And Lizzie B is saying that she uh, she's also working hard, but she's not a complainer like the other one. Um, <laughs> and I talked about that when Barry St. John's vocals come in, it's really in, it's this is like kind of the, the female version of Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale, as far as like there being a huge contrast in their vocals. You've got a very breathy, like uh, uh, high pitched singer. And then this really like soulful, more deeper voiced uh, singer come in. Um, mm. It's got some interesting stuff going on in the song and probably one of the more uh, unusual tracks on the album, in my opinion. So here it goes. And here comes Barry St. John. Well, this one kind of makes you feel like you're going into like musical territory, like, uh oh, what direction is this album going, you know? Yeah. seconds short and sweet uh yeah, like on neither one of us really talked through it we had like no critique i was actually listening to it because i well, didn't really it's a minute and 25 seconds not even a minute and a half it's very i think the interesting thing to me about it is you've got helen chappelle starts off singing this um m- melody and this is kind of the genius of what Roger Glover did here. She's singing this melody. Barry St. John comes in with a completely different melody over the same music. And if you listen carefully, there's, I think it's a clarinet. While Helen Chappelle's singing, the clarinet is playing the Barry St. John melody. And when Barry St. John's playing, the clarinet is playing the Helen Chappelle melody. Very kind of understatedly in the background. And hmm. then on the third go around, the clarinet cuts out all entirely and they both sing their two melodies at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a, br- a brilliant composition. Uh, I know it, it probably to some ears sounds a little like crazy, whimsical, what the hell's going on. But to me, I just think musically it's for a less than 90 minute or 90 second long song. It's really excellently arranged and interesting that they're they could have done so much less with that and they made it so interesting in such a short amount of time and the thing is is like that struck me about it was is like not only is it short but it's not it's not really complex Mm -mm. because like when you were listening to all that i was just listening to the bass and the bass was like boom 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 you know it wasn't really doing anything like crazy 
Well, Mo but, Foster is is is, is an absolute uh, animal. Like he knows. He's like the perfect bass player. He's not somebody that's he plays exactly what he needs to for the song. Like if you if you, you, you we saw what he didn't get ready, which was incredible. And here he's just like only doing like fourths, like doom, 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 doom. Yeah, and which you don't he, have to go crazy or like show off. So of it's course, like, um, it's for it to be a good song or for you to play a good part. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that was um that was good. Um, I would say, um, I mean just because of like, you know, my style and everything like that, you know, I, I give it, I give it a three in, in here, like a three is like, I would say just kind of respectable average. Mm-hmm. I'm giving that one a four, uh, just because I really think it's very clever how he arranged it. All right. Yeah. See, I missed, I missed that part of it, but it's like, if I did pick up on that, I probably would have rated it higher. Yeah. It's, it's worth l- listening to that. Um, that part it's one of those things you don't pick up on the first listen probably Um, because there's just so much thrown at you if you listen to this album in in sequence from start to finish it's I think 40 minutes long and there's so much that gets thrown at you in such a short time like anything else you listen to it 100 times 200 times 300 times you start to you start to pick (laughs) up on a lot of little subtleties that you missed the first time around there's a lot going on oh yeah we've talked about that before just kind of anything. Absolutely. Um, okay. Next up, we have Harlequin Hair. This is Neil Lancaster sings the part of a one-man band, or I guess a one-hair band. Uh, <laughs> hair band. <laughs> That's pretty good. Wow. Um, and this this is not surprisingly based on the poem from the book Harlequin Hair. So here we go. Jack M. Blau on the accordion. And here's the one we thought this was Ian Gillen. Exactly. You could see how you'd think it was Ian Gillen putting on a voice. Again, some great bass there by Mo Foster. That's Mo again. Uh, is he bass through the whole thing? I believe so. I think Roger did some synthesizer work, but he was mostly just focused on the production from what I understand. the whole choir of butterfly ball background singers there. It's a kind of it kind of cuts off right before the next song there. Uh, <laughs> so it gives it away, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's Harlequin Hair. Pretty short and sweet. Yeah, I kind of like how the beginning has that whole like you said, one man band thing. Like you could picture him standing there, like playing the accordion and having that thing strapped on his back while he's like going like this and like with this, with his foot and everything, like, and then it kicks into a whole band. 
Yeah, and I never really thought about it until I got the album because this stuff wasn't in the re-release CD or on the cassette that we had. It was just the songs. So when you get the album and you open up the gatefold and it says uh, Neil Lancaster as a one-man band, and it makes a lot more sense. And then it does mirror what's in the book. It's kind of a hair with doing a one-man band sort of thing. Yeah. But. Yeah, that was... um... That was good. I would say um, I like the dynamics in there, so definitely a three, three point five. I give that one a three. I think it's probably the. Um, I mean, I like it. And it's like anything else. Like if in this on this album, if there's a you don't skip any songs because there's not enough time. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> this song's a, this song's not my. This is probably my least favorite song on the album, to be honest. But uh, not to say that I don't enjoy it. And uh, like I said, I can I can I can survive through a minute and twenty seven seconds of my least favorite song on the album. It's pretty easy. And then this goes into what is probably my. The next four songs are probably some of my favorite on the album, and it starts with um, this one, which we've talked about probably 400 times old blind mole that's uh dudley moore's drummer playing the tabla there in the background wow <laughs> amazing how low he gets but then he kicks it in here with like a like a more normal sounding voice hear those finger snaps mo foster at it again ah those fingers magic fingers (laughs) whether they're alone or with a bass they're just magic It sounds like a Richie Blackmore sort of swell pedal coming in. Now, who was singing that? That was John Goodison. He was kind of that like large, larger than life bearded guy. <laughs> jo- Johnny B. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and what was he playing? Old Blind Mole in this? Or? Yeah, he was. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't uh, mention that. Yeah, that's John Goodison. Uh, sings about a contented mole. <laughs> Forgot to mention that before that. And it's obviously it's based on the poem, Old Blind Mole. Well, yeah, I like everything about this song, Four. Yeah, uh, yeah, this one is, is one of my favorites. I, I'd say I'm going to give it a 4.5. I think um, it, it's so sim- it's such a simple song. You've just got the... The little tabla, you've got Mo Foster snapping his fingers, and then you've got John Goodison singing with the the piano kind of just going in unison with him, which is kind of interesting. And then you've got this little swell guitar at the end, and it's it's very simple, it's very effective, um, gets the point across, and it it get, paints the scene of this mole underground, like what he be. And you know what it made me think of the first time I heard it because. Well, yeah, I would have heard this after because it made me think of uh, Dawn Patrol, my Megadeth. Because <laughs> it's it's got a very similar uh, it, 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 it creates a similar atmosphere. You feel like you're underground. You've got this just 
this little doo 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 this this <laughs> plotting yeah. little bass line. You've got somebody singing kind of like low register, and it's very simple in its arrangement. It's just uh, I think it's bass. Maybe there's not even bass. Maybe it's just piano and vocals, and then there's yeah. little percussion bits. Um, and it's similar with that. And I I don't know why I've always kind of equated it with that song in my mind, but. Well, I also think too that like maybe something that people don't think about is just like singing. The the I like the vocals in this too because like singing in a register that low to me is just as impressive as singing like as high as Glenn Hughes or Ian Gillen, because not everybody can do that and like it sound good mm-hmm. or convincing because it's like kind of like you know what it makes me think of is this like um, Paul McCartney and the Girl Is Mine. The girl, the girl is mine. He can barely yeah, see. You can't even. Do, <laughs> no, I like, can't how, do it. <laughs> how in God's name did he get that? Look? That's that's the one song where I was like, wow, I respect that dude. <laughs> it's true. Like, you know me. I've never like been a big Beatles fan. But when I heard that, I was just like, wow, that's yeah. like hitting a note that low is just as impressive as hitting a note this high. Right. Like, I, th- I think I talked on a previous I, episode like I can hit the notes in Child of Time, but it sounds like shit. <laughs> and it's the same thing with that. Like I could. I actually, I don't think I could even hit these notes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to actually do it. It's another to make it sound good and not make your voice crack. Um, and yeah, that's a great point. It's very much like uh, Caiaphas and Jesus Christ Superstar. It's very impressive to. Oh, that's right. Hit yeah, things in that did, register. Um, oh yeah. He, yeah. Whoever, yeah. Whoever sings his part, like, and I don't mean. You know, not that I don't know, but whoever does that part, it's, they got to have I, that. I believe it's Victor Brox. <laughs> My gentleman, <laughs> you know think, why we are here. I think you're about a fifth higher than he actually thinks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, because I can't. I can't go that low. Maybe yes. with this this cold that I have, I can go a little bit lower. So, well, I remember uh, our, our friend Paul, when he would, he would, we'd be like hanging out. Like, oh, he yeah, had, he would. He, he had he loves the song and he had heard that when you wake up first thing in the morning, your voice is at its lowest. So like sometimes we'd be, we, you know, he'd sleep over or whatever. We'd be like, <laughs> like slowly wake it up in the morning. Nobody said anything yet. And then all of a sudden I heard, oh, blind boy. <laughs> <laughs> he just starts singing it from over the other side of the room. <laughs> it was great. <sighs> and I was like, oh, I guess Paul's up. um so the next track is pretty interesting it's called uh magician moth and it's an instrumental roger glover on synthesizer it's based on the poem by the same name magician moth and this is kind of one of the the picture is not this picture scared my kids (laughs) it's just like this picture of this uh this from behind this moth and this really elaborate cloak approaching like a, a village and it's daytime or it's not like it overly creepy, but he, the moth looks like he's up to no good. He's got like kind of like a a skull on, his, on the on the back of his cloak, but it's not a it's not like a human skull. It looks like the skull of an insect or something. It's very uh, off putting. Um, and this the interesting thing about this is this is actually a demo that Roger Glover had recorded just using synthesizers with the intent of having a full orchestra play it on the album but they grew to like this version with the synthesizers so much that they just left it and left the synthesizers uh, version on the album. So uh, that is Magician Moth. Here we go. 
Oh, I get. There's a piano in the background. Then he's got this little like swelling synth. And if you watched any TV as a kid in the late seventies, early eighties, it sounds like the kind of soundtrack for every little like program that you'd see. And it gives me that very like nostalgic feel for like the like TV and cartoon music of the of the seventies and eighties, you know? Yeah, I was gonna say this sounds like very like like this would probably fit right into like the Stranger Things soundtrack. Yeah. Yep. Even though it, like, you know, predates the 80s by, like, you know, several years. But, I mean, this is the type of stuff that you would also hear in, like, like early 80s, like, um, never-ending story type of, like, exactly. things. And TV movies in the late 70s. Well, so. And synthesizers were such a cheap budget way of pumping out a soundtrack for something. And and I really, like, kind of, like, layering it, too, made it sound really impressive. And I think this is a really cool sort of haunting sounding instrumental yeah I really like this yeah who plays this again it's all Roger Glover and that's the uh, that's the little bridge between Old Blind Mole and the next song Magician Moth well I um, I, I think that's a really haunting little little ditty I like it. Um, what was it? Magician. Wait. Yeah. Magician Moth. Yep. Yeah. Four for Magician Moth. I'm, I'm doling out another 4.5. Really dig. <laughs> I dig the. I'm, You're doling it out. I'm doling it out. I've never made any mistake about the fact that I absolutely love that Moog style synth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. And then it goes. This goes immediately. Uh, this goes immediately right into the next track, which uh, let me just pull this up real quick. Next track is No Solution. Mickey Lee Soul sings to the toad in bed. And this is <laughs> this is based on the poem Toad in Bed. And it's basically this toad lying in bed all sick because he swallowed up some pollution. It's kind of weird. And the uh, Mickey, Mickey Lee, not Mickey Lee Soul, but in the book, the characters is kind of like, checking him out because he's all sick because I don't know if it's kind of a, a tale about how mankind is polluting or whatever it is. I'm not gonna, I'm not the liter- a literary guy to get into that, but it's, yeah, it's basically him t- talking to this, this toad and <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing. So I'm going to start this one off. Uh, this is no solution. And this is one of the best horn arrangements on this album. Again, love the love the groove of the song. And the horns are just so good. horn arrangement on this song is just <laughs> I can't not listen to it it's so good and then you just got Mo laying down that fat bass and Mickey Lee Soul not known not like really known as a singer but does a great job on this 
And there's like, I like it because there's like just enough, like a little bit slap back reverb on his vocals, like just a little bit. Yep. And he, he kind of like sings, but almost talks it a little bit. Yeah. You got the background vocals this time around. Singing No yeah, Solutions. Soul vocals, love that stuff. A little sax solo. Can't go wrong there. It almost kind of reminds me of um, something off uh, one of uh, Coverdale's first couple of solo albums before White Snake. Yeah. This was like uh, kind of the vein that his stuff was in. Yep. Yeah, which if you're not familiar with pre-White Snake, David Coverdale might come as a little bit of a surprise, but yeah. <laughs> it did sound like He was kind of all over the map with like his stuff. And he had there, the same but... background singers, the same women were singing on that album. Now, in this verse, I like this background singers because they throw in the da da! <laughs> it's awesome. This is one of the longer tracks at three and a half minutes, like kind of a normal song length. Almost makes yeah, you wonder no. if they if they pegged this as maybe a potential single. Isn't this very like kind of Beatles sort of like noodling fade out sort of thing? And that's kind of you get the first taste of the next song there. They hit that one little note from the next song because it's overlapping. It's kind of like a mm -hmm. crossfade. Yeah. Uh, but that's no solution. Not to be confused with Glenn Hughes's No Solution a few years later. <laughs> no Solution. So, no Soul Illusion. <laughs> and again, the same background singers. Oh, my God. Um, well, that was good. I always I always looked forward to that song. So uh, that's that gets a four from me. All right. I'm, I'm giving my first five. Hey, oh, hey, oh. I love this song. There was a one point, I think the first time I heard this song, and I remember being at your house, I heard this and I was like, this is the best song I've ever heard. Because it was because of that, it was because of the horn section, that and then that, that lower sax comes in at the end. And you can, if you listen carefully on this in headphones, you can hear the clicks of the keys on the saxophones, just the way that it was produced. Um, I just think that's a... a brilliantly done song i think it's one of those ones i'm surprised nobody has picked up and redone because it's just uh it's, it's great can't get enough of it all right need a minute <laughs> need a minute just to get over that song <laughs> uh this next song coming up is behind the smile and this is david coverdale warns yeah. lily lizard of the fox 
I like how it says like the name of the singer, not the name of the character. <laughs> so David Coverdale warns Lily Lizard of the Fox. And this is based on the poem, like loosely, the poem in the book called uh, Punchinello. And it's like a fox. It looks like a fox, like riding a train, basically. And um, he's sitting in like it looks like he's sitting in a boxcar. I don't know if I'm just reading into that, but um, yeah, David Coverdale sings this one. And let me just kick this one in. Having to get these things queued up in advance because normally when I play these, there's like a little bit of a lead into a song and I can cut over to it to share the screen with you. But there's not much lead into these songs. They just yeah. they just kick right off. So here it is behind the smile. Great Coverdale vocal. It's honestly, I was I, I was posted something on Twitter today, and somebody said that they think this is Coverdale's one of his best performances ever. <laughs> but he he just kills the song. It's so good. And again, he's got like it's well produced. He's got like just enough of a little bit of effects on his voice where it's not overdone, and like it serves the song. It's almost like the effect on his voice kind of mirrors like the electronic feel of the synth, you know? So it all kind of melds together really nice. And the synth drums and keyboards and bass are all so tight. It's like piano layered with synth, layered with bass and drums, all just creating this really interesting groove. his vocals almost kind of fade out before the music even stops yeah it's very it's a very interesting song a minute and 46 seconds very brief song uh you know warning about the this this cunning fox that's gonna trick you and then eat you (laughs) and being warned by none other than coverdale (laughs) coverdale usually the the fox that is going to eat you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The fox if, in the sheep's clothing. If if Coverdale's warning you, then <laughs> you know it's going to be bad. Well, I would say Coverdale at his finest, four and a half. Yeah, I'm dishing out my second consecutive five on that one. Love love this track. Love Coverdale's performance of it. Um, yeah, it's just great. It's quick and to the point. And just the inst- as great as Coverdale is, the instrumentation of it, is just fantastic. Very simple. Like I said, he layers those those grooves all together. You've got like almost all the instruments are meeting up in unison, but then also doing these other little subtle things just off the unison as well. And it's um, I it's one of those things. I, I know there was, a, there was a Deep Purple song on one of the earlier albums we were talking about where it's like I, I almost can't figure out which instrument is doing what. Um, and that's kind of what makes it interesting to me. It's 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 uh, very mm-hmm very unique okay that takes us to the next song the song is called fly away 
And this is Liza Strike Sings to the Caterpillars. Um, this is based sort of on the poem Esmeralda, Seraphin, and Camilla. And it's basically just telling the caterpillars uh, uh, about what they need to do. <laughs> you know, some somebody's going to organize those caterpillars. <laughs> They're not going to do it themselves. They're a bunch of followers. So here we go. And this is Liza Strike, who would sing backups with Pink Floyd and Elton John and such. Really interesting, like, wasp or phaser guitar going on in the background there. Yeah, I really love this chorus. Just so much dynamically going on and on all of these songs. It great almost ride. cuts right to the bridge. Yeah, some great ride cymbal work by Les Binks there. really interesting i love ray fenwick what he does not just on this song but just in general what he does as a player he's not just like strumming chords he he's always doing these interesting little voicings a little higher up on the fretboard and you know just making things interesting the arrangement of the song is interesting too yeah because when like verse chorus bridge and then back to a verse yeah i feel like you don't hear that a lot especially in a two-minute song the fact that you could fit a bridge in on a song so short is impressive. <laughs> another uh, <laughs> another song that fa- uh, goes uh, seamlessly fades into the next song. That we had to cut short, but that's um, "Fly Away." I like the the economy of the songs. It's like you know, you can kind of fit in. Like you know, it's just some really interesting, like cool guitar work and uh, you know arrangements and like you know great chorus and everything like that. But it's like it's it's almost like very like economical, you know. Because mm-hmm. in that one, like I said, it's just like intro, verse, chorus, a bridge back to a verse chorus and then it ends so it's almost like all right we're just gonna cut right to it no no solo you know and then you know and it just kind of gets the point across and it's like and you get a couple of great choruses there which her vocals are really great yep and yeah when you after you said that i thought like the guitar work was really good i like that the instruments too like you know so far throughout the album is like just really interesting sounding effects on everything and it's not overdone it's not too much mm-hmm. you know it's not like overkill 
And I'm not, I, I think I mentioned this before, but I'm not a big fan of musicals in general. There's some that I really love, but in general, I, I'm not, I, I find the music to be very, I don't know if precise maybe is the right word. It's just very clean. And the, the, the singing is very, sometimes can be very bland, like excellent, uh, talented singing and good singing, but not like having a lot of character to it. And th- this kind of I mean, reminds me a little bit of Butterfly Ball, where you've—I'm sorry—of uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, where you've got yeah. this, this—you've got rock singers singing it rather than Broadway singers or theater singers, and you've got this solid rock band backing them up. So it's—they're not just like going to play the exact right. same thing every time. They're doing more of this groove sort of thing and, and jamming the music rather than just playing exactly what's on the what's on the sheet. Right, right. That's that's why I like some of my favorite musicals are like ones just like this. Like um I, I like even like I don't even know any of the newer musicals, but like even the ones that like, you know, claim to be rock and roll musicals don't like of the recent years have that that polish on it that I right. don't like. This is not like this Jesus Christ Superstar, um Rocky Horror Picture Show is another one. Hair. Hair is another Hair. one. Um, even, even one that was like, um, I guess recent around this time would be like a cabaret was another one, which mm-hmm. is not really a rock musical, but I think the subject matter, you know, really did it for me. Plus it was kind of gritty and that kind of seventies way, you know, those are, those are really like, and I'm like not a big musical musicals guy, but, um, you know, those are some of my favorites Yep, and they're all kind of in the same vein. All right. So what do you think about this one? Four. Yep, I'm going to do the same. I enjoy it. I really like that one. <laughs> For all those reasons that I had said before, which I will not repeat. You'll have to rewind <laughs> if you want to hear it. Um, the next song, and it will be the last song of this side of the album. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the second to last song. Uh, it's Aranea. And this is sung by Judy Kuehl, who is, uh, was Roger Glover's girlfriend at the time. And... Uh, this is a song uh, based on the poem called Miss Money Spider. And in the book, it's just this big spider sitting at a vanity, like from behind, doing her makeup. <laughs> and John, uh, Roger Glover said that when he saw this, he thought um, it, it reminded me of like a, a, a young girl in the in the um, in her bedroom doing her makeup, like putting on too much makeup and lipstick and stuff. Uh, somebody, you know, just kind of a younger person. And he wanted somebody a little less experienced to do the vocals. So it didn't sound right. like this really great, talented singer. So he told his girlfriend, Hey, I, uh, you know, you sing, uh, I hear you singing around the house and, you know, would you do this? And she agreed to, to be on the album and do it. And then she also agreed to be, at the Royal Albert Hall to perform it. So I'm sure, imagine as a, somebody who wasn't a performer, that must've been pretty, she does. I think she does an incredible job both times, but wow, that must've been something. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, Judy Kuehl. I hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and she is singing the song Aranea. almost like a reggae vibe to it yeah
And it's funny that, like, I never really thought about it when I first heard this, but you're giving, like, the least experienced song uh, singer on this album, like, the reggae song. <laughs> yeah, like, which I never really thought of it having really a reggae feel until you just mentioned it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think I spent a lot of time thinking about it either. And like we've talked about before, that's kind of great, a great way to do things. You, you don't sit there and think about the style it is. It just stands on, on its own. That's Aranea. But it also seemed to have a little bit of that. I mean, I, well, I, I don't think it sounds weird in the context of this album. But, <laughs> um, but Not also, much good. <laughs> but um, along with the reggae thing, it almost had that like kind of 50s like vibe to mm. it. The um, yeah. You know, kind of that um, like um, like if you think about like um think about the most stereotype like 50s type song that you can think of is like anything in Greece, you know, that you know, type of thing and a reggae beat together along with that kind of just like creates like something totally just out there, like different, which Mm -hmm. um, yeah, never really thought about that until hearing it just now. So that kind of elevates the song for me. Yeah, all right. What are you thinking for the song? Um, you know, I was gonna I was gonna rate it lower, but actually for the least experienced singer and then all the kind of crazy musical stuff going on in there, I, I gotta give that one a four as well. Yeah, well I'll match you on that one. I really like I, I like it. I, I think it's I think she does a great job singing. Like I, in the context of the album, I don't think I'd stop and say, Hey, wait a second, is this not a professionally trained singer? <laughs> I think she does a great job. Um yeah. you know, despite you know being on an album with all of these absolute top of their game singers. She does a great job. Speaking of great singers, the next song up is a little song to close out the first side of the album uh, called sitting in a dream. And this is uh, the liner notes say Ronnie Dio sings the part of froggy arranged and conducted by Del Newman. So as we call him froggy, James Dio, um, (laughs) And we talked about this is the uh, the the song. This is based on the uh, the poem Froggy. The frog is sitting there. He's like by some mushrooms. Presumably, he's taking a bite of the one of them, and he's tripping balls <laughs> and uh, singing the song. And this is Ronnie's take on it. <laughs> this is Ronnie's tape take on a on a frog tripping balls. <laughs> frog tripping on mushrooms. <laughs> I think that should be the the selling point for the album. Hey, do you want to hear Ronnie James Dio's impression of a frog tripping on mushrooms? There's only one place to hear it, and it's on the butterfly ball. And it's uh, here sitting in a dream. Mm. I love those little harmonics he puts in there. The guitar has this like really crystal clear tone to it too. Yep. Who's on guitar? This would be Ray Fenwick. That bass right there is just brilliant. Brilliant. 
Wow, this is like one of Ronnie's best vocal performances as far as I'm concerned. It's a beautiful song. Got the strings swelling in here. I don't want to talk too much. Too, it's so good. <laughs> it's, it's, it is. It's a breathtaking song. Just all the instrumentation, instrumentation of the pianos, what Mo Foster's doing in the bass. It's just incredible. And I mean, you could just hear like the. Just that, that just like bright youthfulness in Ronnie's voice. It's like one of his best early vocals. Yeah, for sure. Got this great little instrumental this little middle section here. of the so where it just kind of slowly builds back up into the song. A couple of dynamics in there. You've got and now you've got the strings and you've got the piano playing the synths are coming in and starting to match what the piano is doing i don't know how many tracks he was working with on this album but he had to have at least 16 or it, probably 16 was probably all you had back then but i don't think he was doing this on four <laughs> And they would do this on the 1999 concerto with the whole orchestra. If you're used to Ronnie James Dio belting it out, this is this is a little different. Showing that he can he can sing just as soft as anyone else and still be very still have the same power and the same emotion that he puts into his songs when he's belting it out. best thing about Ronnie is that he never shied away from this stuff. Like, I mean, even when they, when did they do this again in 99? Yep. And I mean, he had already gone through the eighties, like getting heavy. He had already gotten back together with Sabbath. He had done, um, angry machines, like all those like super heavy albums. And then they're like, Hey, you want to go back and revisit your early work and, you know, like sing this part of like a, a frog singing a ballad. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, and then he goes back and he friggin' nails it, you know, yeah. like oh, even yeah. in the 99 performance, it's like, that's a bad, like, even when I saw it, when I would used to like, you know, I was lucky enough to have seen Ronnie in concert, like several times, you know, and he would always do like the early stuff. Like, I don't think I can't remember. Yeah, I don't think he ever did anything off this, but just like the fact that he would do like early rainbow songs, like deep cuts, like stuff yeah. that like, you know, weren't even like <clears throat> in the same style as the albums that he did, but he knew, you know, he's just like, this is some like good stuff and people want to hear it. Yeah. And, and he could sing it. So why not? 
Yep. So, but I mean, that's probably like one of his best early vocals. Like, you know, wow. Yeah. So that should be no surprise that I'm giving this a five. <laughs> Same here. It's I'd hard give it to a ten if I could. It's it's hard to it's hard to beat that one. It's such a such a great song. Great performances all around. Great vocals. Yeah, yeah hands um, down, my favorite on favorite song on the whole album. Yeah, I mean, I I. I'd have a hard time picking a favorite on this album. I really would, but that's, that's one of them for sure. And I mean, like, even with some of the crazy, like you think like, okay, Froggy James Dio, right. <laughs> and he's going to be singing these like weird ass <laughs> lyrics, but it's just like, you know, a red and white balloon sails across my mind. It's like, that's pretty poetic. Yeah. It doesn't even sound like weird. Like, I guess if you like, if you broke down that first, like Glenn Hughes song where you're just like, what was it? Ants and, bugs and this or that mobilize like you're just yeah. kind of like what the hell but yeah. like well it just goes to show you can sing if you're a great singer you can sing any line and make it just sound sound meaningful and powerful yeah. if i sang about bugs and mobilizing people would be like <laughs> what kind of crap is this <laughs> but that's the thing is is like these guys were like committed to it you know what i mean it's like they like you know put as much conviction into their performances as if they were like singing about like you know like if the lyrics, you know, they didn't look at these and be like, "What? Wow, this is juvenile. This is dumb. I'm not singing this. They were like, all right, let me just sing the hell out of it. Yeah, this That's this album good. was not a big payday for anybody. So yeah, anyone that okay. was here, I'm, I'm sure everyone got paid, but everyone that was here was was doing it because they they were f- friends. They They knew Roger Glover. They wanted to support this project and th- nobody phoned it in. And, and you can tell. Yeah, passion project, definitely. All right, sitting in a dream, receiving the first double five. And that oh, brings yeah. us to the next song. Um, this is uh, Jimmy Helms sings the part of the Kingfisher. It's a a, 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 um, a poem called Waiting for a Bite. That's the Kingfisher just kind of waiting to um, get some food. It's sung by Jimmy Helms. I think I said that already. And... Uh, Here we go. Ray Fenwick's doing a lot with like harmonics on the guitar on this, these two songs. I feel like these are like very like musical-ish vocals. Like this he one? sounds like he's being, he, yeah, he sounds very theatrical. Not, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, he's, like he's, I just feel like his performance is very theatrical. He's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like almost like he's crooning. Yep. Apparently the Kingfisher was not invited to the ball. So he's just kind of sitting there waiting to eat some fish. He's got a he's got a he's got a fishing line in the in the water. He looks all pissed off. He's got a backpack <laughs> and a top hat with little lures in it. <laughs> Oh, 
some more great synth work to, to bridge those two sections. I don't know why he didn't get invited to the ball. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> More perfectly integrated synth work. song wants to start but oh almost Ooh. i have to wait a second for that one so that's waiting yeah what are you waiting for let's rate it <laughs> um that one was that was good um even though i enjoyed it like um it was um for me just like um like average like three and a half i give that one a four Three and a half. Make him laugh. I really appreciate the uh, appreciate the melody on that one. I think it's really interesting. All right, that kicks us into the next song, which is Sir Maximus Mouse, as Eddie Harden sings about the business mouse. <laughs> and I, oh I gotta just, I gotta just set the stage by saying I think this, I love this song because it's just, it's about like this, this capitalist mouse like in in an office and even the picture of him in the book is him like at a desk with like chart like charts showing like profits and things and he's smoking a cigar and he's like he's just about making money and it's just such a great idea to me thinking about this like really hard-nosed mouse who just like <laughs> he just wants to he wants to earn profits and see his stocks going up and he's just ruthless this cutthroat mouse just always has amused me and it's also it's Eddie Harden who I love uh, who does a great job singing it. So, and he's not playing the part of the mouse; he's singing about the mouse. It's like it's not in the first person. So he's just telling you all this whole story. If you listen to the lyrics about how much of a cutthroat capitalist this mouse is, uh, so obviously it's based on the poem called Sir Maximus Mouse from the book. Here we go. Uh, let me just fire this guy up, and we'll go right into Sir Maximus Mouse. Heavy. It's one of the heavier songs. He's the taker. He's facing a crisis, a 
And you hear that organ, that kind of organ in the background. That must have been Harden on the organ. It sounds like his kind of style. He's got that kind of percussive John Lord side of sort of style. Yeah. Great organ solo here. Amazing to have like a 45 second organ solo in a two and a half minute song. <laughs> But it absolutely fits. Yeah. Well, because the song's got a little bit of a heavy edge to it. Yeah. It's interesting that they chose Eddie Harden to sing this, which I don't have any objections to. I think he's awesome. But he's not the heaviest of the singers on this album. feel like a lot of these songs like they have that you know that style of singer where they're not um for lack of a better word they don't have that edge to them you know they just have that kind of like straight ahead vocal but it seems to work i just have to highlight a few of the uh, lyrics on this uh, because this song just cracks me up (laughs) it's just so good um so uh, some of the lyrics here. He's facing a crisis. A drop in cheese prices force him to sell. <laughs> I just love the idea of this mouse. He's like, ah, I'm losing my ass on these cheeses. Sell. It's just so great. Um, you know, he's playing with others' lives. He makes sure that he survives. They can go to hell. This is a kid's album. Keep in mind. Um, you know, uh, they all bow their faces from men in high places to the office girl. Um, he lives in a house that he bought from the devil. I mean, it's just there's such great stuff in here. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, just just uh, read the lyrics to the song and, and just tell me you're not amused and impressed by this amazing mouse. <laughs> <laughs> He's this mouse is just a, a complete asshole. It's just great. <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie Harden's telling you all about him. Like, listen, this guy's bad news. He all he cares about is money. Uh, oh, and he, oh yeah, he says he lives in a house. Uh, he lives in a uh, he lives in a house that he bought from the devil. I told I told you about that. But um, there's another. I can't find it here. But there's another line where he says he lives in a house bought with pieces of paper. You know, it's just like because even the mouse is like, I don't even know what this is. This is paper, but. I'm giving it to I'm I'm a, I'm a simple mouse here. I just I know about cheese and I know about profits. But anyway, I could I could probably do an entire episode just about the lyrics of that song. I, I freaking love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I enjoy the um. I mean the yeah. I mean I could didn't even know what the lyrical content was, but that makes it even better. Um, I like the music. Yeah, the music is great. Music is heavy. I like the I like the drums. I like the drum beat and the 
You know, it's you know, that little. Yeah, it's almost like the Eye of the Tiger kind of driving, sort of galloping beat almost. Yeah, and then, you know, that drums, you know, in, in the verse is very uh, not, not typical, I guess, you know, right. so. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's in the 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 organ, you know. It's you know, I love me a good seventies organ. So oh yeah, so um, four four for me. I got to go with a five. I love Maximus Mouse. I know it's more for it's more actually just for the lyrics and the the idea of him than I mean I love the music too, but man that mouse he's just bad news. You stay away <laughs> from him, kids. Um, okay. So what do we got next? Um, oh, next is Dreams of Sir Bedivere, and this is not Belvedere, but Bedivere. I thought it was Belvedere for many years. Sir Bedivere. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Bedivere. Um, so this is ba- this is an instrumental, uh, and it's based on the poem Sir Bedivere and the Stag Beetle. So, who plays on it? Uh, it's, uh, conducted by Martin Ford and John Bell. So this is, this is kind of cuts back and forth between the orchestral bits and the band kind of playing. And, um, I really like the interplay between the two. So let me just share this with you and we'll be on our way. Love the drums there. The bass is kind of doubling up here. And then it goes into this orchestral interlude. And this is actually one of the longer tracks on the album clocking in yeah. a little over four minutes and it's meant to just bridge the gap between sir maximus mouse and the next song coming up which is together again now i think in the book this this part comes a little earlier mm-hmm Trying to find it while we listen to this. No, it comes a little later. So this this one, my kids love this one because it's like an ant riding a stag beetle and he's like in full armor. And he's like just basically ready to fight. He's like looking down on some like uh, ladybugs. It's like he's going to charge them with his lance or something. Kind of weird. He's riding his stag beetle steed. <laughs> this is <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's just kind of like this triumphant sort of valiant ant holding holding aloft his sword, ready to charge down on this on these poor unsuspecting ladybugs. But the fact that this is called Dreams of Sir Bedivere, I don't know, like, if this is what he... Is he dreaming about this sort of thing? He's talking about fighting goblins and elves and all this kind of crazy stuff in the book. 
between all the subject matter and the kind of Alan Aldridge psychedelic stuff, it's pretty trippy. Like, have you ever listened to the Butterfly Ball on weed? I like how the you get a full band. It's almost kind of like concerto. Reminds me of the concerto, a shorter version. You've got a band, get the orchestra comes in, the band starts playing with the orchestra, and then the band plays on yeah, their own. I mean, probably where he got it from. And then you can hear this like train kind of sound effect towards the end. Maybe Sir Belvedere was dreaming of going on a train. <laughs> I can't. I... And this kind of. Yes, I'm not really sure what this was supposed to be about, but interestingly, on the concert. The live concert, they open with this. Huh. The sequencing is completely different on that. I'm not sure why. And then I always, I kind of contest that, like to me, listening to this, the next part of this whole thing, which is actually sequenced on the next song, I always thought was part of this, but... Uh, for some reason, it's part of the next song. But anyway, that's Dreams of Sir Sir Bedivere. Bedivere. Yes, not... Not Belvedere. Belvedere. <laughs> Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> what, was the guy, what was the actor's name that played Sir Belvedere? Oh, man. Christopher Hewitt. And I'm ashamed that I know that so readily. <laughs> Is it? Oh, I'm thinking... Um, What was... What was his name on the show? His first name, he like a Lynn, Lynn Belvedere. Lynn, Lynn. That's what I always remember thinking because there was only, I've only ever met one other guy named Lynn other than, well, I've never met Mr. Belvedere. So I guess I've only <laughs> met one guy named Lynn. <laughs> I, I did never, I never met Mr. Belvedere, I confess. Yeah, regrettably, I've never met Ms. Bel- <laughs> Mr. Belvedere either. I wish that, back in the day, I wish that I had. It was one of my favorite shows. Yeah, it was a good show. Who didn't like <laughs> Mr. Belvedere? Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what do we didn't like Mr. Belvedere? <laughs> he didn't like Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> uh, All right. So what are we giving um, this song? That was a that was a nifty little instrumental. Um, three and a half. Yeah, that sounds fair. You know, if 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 I thought the other part of it was included, I might give it a four, but I'm also going to give it a three and a half. I really like it. I think it's a good, well done little interlude there. Yeah. Which kicks us to the next song. Together again, Tony Ashton sings and plays a newt. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and this is based on the poem, Cheers, My Dears. Which is like kind of a bunch of newts in a in a bar, like all like drunk and playing the piano. And when you listen to this, you'll understand the connection because this sounds like Tony Ashton drunk playing the piano. Which it may very well have been. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Tony Ashton's such a loose cannon. I don't know how to classify it. Was he (laughs) pretending to be drunk or was he really drunk? I don't know. But um, 
he definitely is doing a really good job of pretending if he's not. And um, it's kind, but that's kind of the point of the song too. Is this guy's drunk and he's he's singing about? Um, uh, if you look at it here, you know he he's like, oh, is there a ball going on? I don't even know. Like we're all just all here, like you know, <clears throat> drinking and having having a good time. You know, bartender, give me another one, whatever sort of thing. Um, just kind of doing like uh, it's almost like they're gathered around singing drinking songs. So this kicks off with the the beginning part of uh, the beginning part of it is kind of the tail end of that Sir Bedivere, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know if I'm right. Um, and then it goes right in together to together again. This is kind of like. This is what Dreams of Sir Bedivere started off as. The face. <laughs> so oh. good. <laughs> Sorry, I, I talked over it. I apologize. Oh. To me, that should be the conclusion of the instrumental. But here we go into this rollicking piano, drunken vocal by Tony Ashton here. We used to like to sing that. Well, he starts to slur his words later, which is the fun part, like right here, I think. Towards the end here. I was like, oh, he threw a little belch in there. <laughs> it's like he gets progressively worse as the song goes on. <laughs> like he burps and then ends on like a sour note. And it's like, I like the, the the last line is like I'm glad that we're together again. He's like, glad <laughs> like even when I first heard this, I like without knowing anything about like inside information or anything, I always got the impression that this dude was like drunk. Like it sounded like authentic performance, like drunk so for my, real. Yeah, like yeah, my guess was that he was actually drunk. Like you know, Roger Glover or whatever. Like they went out for they went out for drinks, and he's like. They get back to the studio at like three in the morning. He's like, dude, let's record it now. Let's do the song now. Now that you're like, let's not wait till tomorrow. Let's do it right yeah, now. Yeah. Like I want to capture the perfect vocal performance. I think that it's authentic. Yeah. I, it's quite possible. We'd have to ask uh, Roger himself. Yeah. Which maybe, maybe if there's another meet and greet package, we'll buy it <laughs> yeah, in a few years. Oh God. Hopefully. Um, yeah. Just based on like how hilarious that song is. I gotta give it a four. Right. I'm gonna give it a four point five. 
I just think it's it's great. It 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 lends this um, little bit of levity between this instrumental and then what's coming up next, which is a very um, which could also be considered one of the heavier songs on the album. Even though it, I don't even know if there's any guitar in it. It's it's very heavy. Um, the the strings kind of do the heavy lifting in this one. It's a very unique uh, song, mm-hmm. and that's uh, "Watch Out for the Bat." It's John Gustafson warns of the long-eared bat, arranged and conducted by Mike Moran. Obviously sung by John Gustafson, our buddy from Quatermass and other many musical endeavors. And it's based on the poem, The Long-Eared Bat, which is a freaking freaky-looking bat. <laughs> like, like I'm, I hate bats, like, just in general, but this bat is really freaky-looking. My kids weren't really scared of the bat. I think I was more scared of the bat than my kids were <laughs> reading this book. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's so for the bat. Let's kick it off here. And we're back to the shorter songs again. I always think of this one as being longer, but I guess not. I really like this because <clears throat> the strings really do make it heavy in place of a guitar. And I always thought that this was Ronnie singing. Yeah. And Ronnie would have been great on this. Yeah, Ronnie would have been great on this, but John Gustafson also is. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's great. Bad is a bad guy. He makes Sir Maximus Mouse looks like a like a like a yeah. The, <laughs> the strings on this are just incredible. That's it. Really short, really to the point, but it just it it creates this sense of drama, the sense of fear at the end of the or towards the end of the album here about this freaking bat coming in and screwing everything up for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And that's probably why they use the strings, because easily could have translated onto guitar. But, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's so interesting to make it heavy. It's so interesting that it it, they use only strings to, to do it. And I think it. I think it works. It makes it so much. I'm glad they didn't use a guitar. It makes it so interesting. Um, th- this could, this song could easily, though, like you could do a cover of this on guitar, and it could be like just oh, a sure. cool, heavy song. But I mean, I love the way that it worked out with the strings. I prefer it. I love like John Gustafson's performance. I think it's amazing. Um, I think it contains like he's going to take your life. He's going to take your wife. Like holy crap, man! This bat is a dick. <laughs> I think it's being very charitable to the bat. <laughs> He's going to kill you and then take your wife. Uh, that's pretty bad. Uh, I think it contains one of the worst lyrics on the album. And I just, <laughs> I just have to mention it. Um, so, so make no mistake there. You'll end up a steak rare. 
not I don't like that that line. And it's funny in the in the lyrics book it says you'll end up a steak and then in parentheses rare. Um, <laughs> and I remember Paul and I listening to this album years ago and we debated because we didn't have the lyrics and we were just debating what he said. And we used to think he said you'll <laughs> you'll end up a stink rat. <laughs> <laughs> and for the longest time I thought that that's what the words were. Because uh, it's like well, all these animals going on in this. So who knows? It could be. Yeah. Uh, but I, honestly, I think that might have been a better lyric than what they actually put in there. But uh, that aside, I think it's a really great song. I love the performance and the arrangement. It's all it's great. I agree. Um, four and a half. Four point five. All right. Do you hear that? Boop, 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 boop. It's a truck backing up to deliver another five. <laughs> Boom. Uh, <laughs> I love that song. I think it's great. Um, then we get to the, the new song on the album, which, you know, we <laughs> it was. Um, so, yeah, th- this when this album was released, this song was for whatever reason, wasn't on the album. Uh, the song's called Little Chalk Blue. It just went to directly to the next song when they re-released it in, on this 1989 release that we got. It included Little Chalk Blue. So when we got the CD, we were, we were like, oh, this new... It, to me, it was like the most exciting thing in the world. Oh, my God, there's another song from the Butterfly Ball I've never heard. And even though I only spent a few years listening to this album before getting this, I still think of it as the new song. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's no little text because it wasn't on the original album. It's it's sung by, um, by John Lawton. Uh, who we talked about as being, you know, uh, he would go on to be in Uriah Heep. He was in Lucifer's Friend. It's based on the poem, The Butterfly's Airlift and the Weevils versus Caterpillar's Cricket Match. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, it, it just basically, on a, in a one-off line, mentions Little Chalk Blue, which I guess is a type of butterfly called Little Chalk Blue. He goes through all these different types of butterflies. Oh, is the Purple Emperor and all these other things. And he mentions butterfly, uh, m- mentions Little Chalk Blue, which is a weird one to pick. Of all the butterflies to pick, it, it's a weird one, but um, it works. Uh, and it only, so when they made this re-release, they included this one in the sequence that it was done during the Royal Albert Hall concert. So... Here comes Little Chalk Blue. I think it's a cool title too. I always it's that. it's interesting. It's just a little little different, but here we go. This is, you know, last week in our episode, we talked about how John Lawton sounded like he could be confused for Ronnie Dio. You don't hear it as much on this performance, I don't think. No, but he definitely sounds like somebody here that I've heard. Oh, Dennis DeYoung. He's got that Dennis DeYoung kind of... Kind of getting some sticks vibes from his vocals. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah, actually, yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah, I can I can hear that. I mean, this song to me sounds like it was 
designed to be a potential si single. So I'm surprised they didn't put it on the original album. It's got a different vibe than the rest of the album. It does a little bit. It's a nice little musical intro or uh, interlude. And I got to say, John Lawton on the live concert, he fills in a, a bit for Dio along with Gillen. And um, he really steals the show. He's just whew, an incredible singer who I really outside of Butterfly Ball was not really familiar with much of his stuff. Oh, he's good. Yeah, he's excellent. it out there at the end. Benwick starts uh, doing a little doing a little riffing at the end here. It seems like the most composed of all the songs. I, I don't want to say composed, but the most. Maybe traditional composition. Yeah, yeah thank you. Exactly. It, 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 that's and maybe that's why it doesn't seem like it jives as well with the other songs. But it um, I think it's a great performance. Mm, yeah. Like you said, it sounds like it would. Could be a single or something. Yeah. All right, so what do you think about Little Chalk Blue? I like Little Chalk Blue. I love the the vocals. Um, four for me. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a solid four point five. I think I think it really. I don't think it's great. I think John Lawton is, again, I am a bit ignorant on on John Lawton in general, but I think he, he his performance here and on the live concert are just tell me he's completely underrated especially compared to some of the other names on this recording he's just an underrated singer really great stuff mm, yeah all right so next up we have uh the song the feast and the feast is uh another instrumental and it's the, t the little subtitle for it is it usually it says like roger glover on whatever or this person connected it says simon centipedes time of times so <laughs> i don't know what that's supposed to tell us <laughs> but here we go um here we go with the feast this is we're kind of a approaching the end of the album 
we've got this little nice little piano solo piano going to kick us off into the the, the, fi the finale of the album here I don't know who played this I don't know does it say anywhere in the album it doesn't um I mean it could have been it could have been Eddie Harden it could have been Mike Moran it could have been Ann O'Dell one of the three of them like how it like musically is bringing back some of the themes from the earlier songs yep as a good concept album should exactly yeah. right here yeah. a little sitting in a dream thing never really realized it was doing that until you mentioned it <laughs> just to show you no matter how many how many hundreds of times you listen to an album you can always pick up new things like some musicals would start with like an overture you know which touches on all the themes this just kind of throws it in towards the end I know you hate when they do that on a studio recording, but I don't think they were. I don't think that was the in intent here. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually didn't mind that because it sounded like it was um, it was meant to be like somebody performing a piano, like in a in a lounge or in front of an audience. The the way that I hate it is is like when a rock song is done yeah. and everybody's like, and it's <laughs> we, like we rule. <laughs> We rule! Hey. Oh my gosh, <laughs> shut up. Um, well, I mean, um, yeah, I love, I love the feast. That's, um, that's really nice. It's like there's a lot of great, like, just kind of, I don't know, me, piano work, like just music in this. So, like, this really nice, like, for yeah, it's for sure, pretty solid. I think yeah, I think you'll talk me into a four. Um, I think it's really uh, yeah, it's it's very simple, very solo piano, and really good stuff. Which leads us into if you know any song from this album, you would know this song, and that is "Love Is All." Um, I've got a great documentary that I'll throw up on YouTube and hopefully not get us banned, but <laughs> that York Planer actually sent to me a few months back, and it's a documentary about the making of this specific song it's got interviews with alan aldridge roger glover ronnie dio um uh ray fenwick eddie harden all the people that were involved with making this particular song because this song became a single for them and actually was really huge in in several european countries it was and, and this song was also ronnie james dio's first gold record so the first gold record Dio ever got was for this song, for singing this song. And there's some interesting nice. stuff on it. Um, it was, yeah, it was huge. Like I said, all over Europe and um, the, they were, they, there's a lot of talk about how they were, they were trying in sort of intentionally to make this be a Beatles-ish, a Beatles-ish song, which it clearly is <laughs> the first time i heard this it's it's so similar to you know love is uh, you know 
Love is All You Need by the Beatles. Well, this one's called, uh, I'm sorry, All You Need is Love by the Beatles. This song is called Love is All You Need. (laughs) So they just changed a few. I mean, it's, it's different enough that obviously no, there were no legal problems, but, but there were a lot of people obviously saying it's a little, uh, a little on the nose. Um, and Dio describes it as being very Beatle-like, a very upbeat song. And I guess when it got, when it got released, it was, you know, Roger Glover and guests and everyone thought Roger Glover sang the song. And there's an interview with Dio saying, you know, wow, yeah, everyone, he, Dio was kind of pissed about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's like, they should have put my name on it. It's not, and he, and he says, you know, wow, everyone, everyone thought Roger sang this. And he's like, wow, I didn't know Roger Glover could really sing that well. And oh, uh, a little bit of, you know, just Dio being Dio. Um, but yeah, again, it didn't really get that big in England and not really much at all in the States. But um, in the rest of Europe, it was really huge. Um, so uh, here we go with Love is All. Base boom. Ray Fenwick talks about adding that little bit in at the end, which is very Beatles. <laughs> it's like the melody and the and the song structure alone are very Beatles, and the fact that he's throwing in things like that just accentuates it even more. Sounded like they recorded Ronnie's voice with a little bit of like overdrive in there too. Yeah, it's a little overmodulated almost. They said that uh, I guess they tried. They recorded this version a few different ways, and the, in the bonus tracks you can hear it. They recorded a version with Eddie Harden singing it, and they were like, "Eh, it's okay." And then they sang one with Roger Glover singing it, and they said, eh, "It's okay." And then they finally just decided to bring Dio in, and obviously he brought this whole new energy to the song. Now we get into the Eddie Jobson violin part here. <laughs> it's almost like this like weird little polka interlude. <laughs> Again, the Beatles were known to do a lot of weird little instrumental interludes like this, too. So it's kind of just fuels the fire even a little bit more. I love this. It's just Ronnie 
Ronnie Dio just improvising here at the end. Roger Love is like, bring the levels down, let's fade him out. <laughs> He's going off the rails. <laughs> like it's it's it, like it has that stuff in the lyrics book, but I don't I, I can't imagine it was in the original lyrics. He's like, bring your backs to the wall. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> singing all this just kind of like random stuff that rhymes with all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Ronnie would do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ronnie was great for that stuff. And I mean, you know, Ronnie could sing anything and I'd listen to it. Yeah, that is that is true. And you think about it, it doesn't really make sense. Like in the in the context of the lyrics, it's like, we're your backs to the wall. <laughs> exactly. Oh, the diver. You know, <laughs> you know it's just like. He probably I mean, cut even, it. There's probably like two more minutes before the fade out of just like, and the castles on the hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh but yeah it was so ronnie you could even like you could see that little glimpse of like you know what he was gonna do like like 10 years later or whatever yep. like awesome oh well you know you know me and my boy ronnie yep i gotta drop a five on that one. Oh, dropping a five all right i mean just for ronnie's performance alone i mean it's like you could tell he was like you know into that yeah. <laughs> and I mean it sounded great too. Yeah. Like I, said, yeah. I think they did a lot of like unusual like vocal stuff on this album. Like, I mean, they didn't just like put his vocals way up front or anything like that. It was almost like like you said, they kind of modulated or did some kind of like like a little bit of like feedback. Like, you know, it's like he was like singing too close to the mic or something, but it didn't sound like Badly done. Yeah, it's out, it sounded intentional. Like an intentional choice, yeah, to do something to his vocals, yeah. yeah I'm going to give that one a solid 4.5. I really do I love that song. Uh, dig it. It's definitely... Uh, I can see. I can see why it would have been... Pop- I'm actually surprised listening to it that it wasn't more popular elsewhere. Like, there were a few European countries where it was topping the charts. Uh, I'm surprised it didn't get a little bit more play than that, because it's it's a great song really well done and it's like i said it's it's obviously in a beatles style but it's not so derivative that it's like uh, it's like you're ripping off the beatles it's like it's just it's mimicking their style unless it wasn't bigger because some people were like oh it sounds so much like the beatles boo yeah i mean yeah i could have had the opposite effect <laughs> who knows all right that leaves us with only one more track and that is the track homeward so uh, love is all pretty much takes place at the ball and then homeward is like okay we're all done here we're gonna travel home and this is ronnie dio froggy sings on the way home so this is froggy james dio walking (laughs) his way back home after the ball um after just having the time of his life with his back to the wall (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so he was the way he was the, just the frog in love is all though right uh he was the frog in love is all he was a frog in sitting in a dream yeah so he's he's the frog through the whole thing yeah anytime yeah. ronnie geo dio sings he's the frog all right <laughs> let's just get that straight <laughs> <laughs> should i add a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode let me just the part of the up. frog will be sung by ronnie dio <laughs> let's just clear this up right now ronnie james dio's a frog <laughs> 
<laughs> As someone of French heritage, I am highly offended. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, let's see, homeward. This actually might be the longest song in the album, if only by a few seconds. And capturing some more of his sitting in a dream style. It's time to get back home. Wow. This is so good. I need a star to guide me. I'm feeling so This would have been about maybe <coughs> a year before his rainbow stuff. So he's still in just an elf at this point. But I mean, his voice is just so like pure. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah this, I mean, everyone talks about how amazing a singer he is, and it's really not overstated. <laughs> We got like a full choir and strings here. Instead of having this big epic close to the album, you've got this more understated, more somber close to it. A little children's choir here. The only time you'll probably hear Ronnie singing over a children's choir. <laughs> You won't hear that on um, Strange Highways or Angry Machines. <laughs> it's too bad, too. <laughs> Wings are sadly folding. Here comes another day. And again, I, I got to state that I, I got into this album as a teenager. I really wonder what it would have been like if I'd heard this as a kid. Yeah. If there had been that accompanying movie to it, I, I bet it would it would probably have even a stronger place in my heart. gotta say a lot about Glover's production here too what a, he was early on in his production career at this point he'd only yeah. been out of purple for a year he had some chops
That's it. That's the so clues. You just hear him like mm-hmm, on the way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just doing like you know. Roger's like, all right, he's not saying any actual words right now, so I'll let him keep going. His back's not to the wall. I'll, I'll let him <laughs> go for a minute. So he's just like the end of the na 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 na. When you're back to the wall. <laughs> And then when they fist hits their face, I don't know what else. What else would he say? Going down, 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 down. What is, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Well, that's it. That's the butterfly ball. What's uh? What's your rating for Homeward? Oh, geez. I mean, <clears throat> I have to say, like this song, and um. And um, sitting in a dream, like when Ronnie like started singing, like I literally like got like goosebumps. Yeah, like, that's how good his voice is. Like Ronnie, five five for me. Like this is I like I forget about this song too. It's like Rivals. Sitting in a dream is like my favorite ballads. It's great on this on this album. Like I don't know which one I like better. I think it's like one of those like. Tomorrow I could wake up and like a one, and then the next day I could like the other one better. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a solid four point five. Really, man, like I, I really didn't know going into this. I didn't think about what I was gonna. I mean, there's a few I had a pretty good idea on, but I didn't really yeah, think about it. I just know the songs that I really love on this. I mean, yeah. I love every song on this. Um, but yeah, that's wow. Just listening to that album. Again, in very critical detail, I can't I can't say enough good things about it. It's really, yeah. really good. Yeah. So. So it looks like um. Looks like our total. Total tally here. I gave the, the album a, four point oh three and you four point two eight. Even with all the fives that I handed out, I think you gave a few more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I gave a few more fives. With the total combined rating of eight point three zero, which it's, um actually is exactly the same as like burn burn stormbringer and come taste the band are all like pretty much the same rating. Yeah, and burns eight point three one. Yep, stormbringer and come taste the band eight point three three. So yeah, we we give this um. Almost as much as Burn Stormbringer, but you know, a negligible so, difference. So, Mark Three and Mark Four. The only other one that comes close is Machine Head and yep. um, Captain Beyond. <laughs> Captain Beyond still standing strong in there with these albums. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a great album, but yeah, if you're talking about post Deep Purple or Deep Purple Family albums, like this one and Captain Beyond are our two highest rated right now. Yes, they are leading between the pack the, for sure. Between the two of us. And um, yeah, this is definitely a, uh, a interesting, interesting little album. Like hearing it through for the first time in a while, it's um, not as you're right. It's definitely kind of a um, like a loose concept album. There's not really too much to it. Yep. Um, but you know, I think like when I've heard this album or cuts off in the past, like, you know, several years or whatever, I usually just gravitate right toward the Ronnie songs, Mm -hmm. of course. But yeah, there are, there are some that you could take here, like out of context and 
like them, but listening to the whole thing is an entry. You got to be in the mood to like hear the whole thing. Yeah, and but in the whole thing, it, like I said, it it it's stitched together so seamlessly that it's one of those albums to me. I can't hear one song and then just be like, yeah, that's enough. I I have to hear the next song and the next song. It's they're all they're they're all dependent on each other to me. Um, well, yeah, you can't just be like, oh, you know, I'm just going to put on like, uh, you know, watch out for the bat and then like just turn it off. Yeah. Like it starts <laughs> like it's crossfading into the next song and it just stops dead. And you're like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no, I don't feel inc- incomplete. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's again. Yeah, it's 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 an unusual album, but I, I, I like that it's so loose in its concept and that you don't feel you can just listen to this as a collection of songs, not really understand the concept and still enjoy it. Yeah. And the yeah, more I you mean, learn about it, the more you learn about if, and if you want to read the book, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a weird friggin' book. It's, it's a kid's book. It's weird. It's, it's kind of funny, fun and interesting. And the it's, if you do have young children, you want to watch it. The pictures are so, and the pictures are important in a kid's book because before they can read, they're just looking at the pictures as you talk. There's so much going on in each one of these pictures. It must have taken him a month to draw each one of these pictures. They're so intricate, so many little bits and pieces. And I know my kids would really like kind of create these stories in their mind about it while I was reading. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Even if you're an adult and you, I mean, I bought this before I had kids just cause I love the album so much. And I bought it and I was just like, I just want to see what the hell this book is that it's based on. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I definitely gravitate more towards the music than the book, but um, yeah, a lot going on in the butterfly ball. And I mean, if you think about it, I mean, we like, I don't know about you, but it's like, I didn't really follow the concept or know what the story was when I first got it. So when you said you can just put this on and enjoy it without even knowing what the concept of this concept album is, it's like, you totally can. Yeah. But you know, knowing, knowing about it just makes it more interesting. And like listening to some of the lyrics, like when you were just dissecting, like, you know, what a jackass or Maximus mouse is, or, (laughs) you know, it just makes it like more fun more funny, um, more interesting of an album. So it's like, um, yeah, I think that's why it's so in, in, enduring to uh, those us fans of it. Yep. The few that we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Butterfly Ball. So a few quick little things about after this album was, re- was released. Um, there's some great interviews from this book that I have. Um, what's the name of the book? It's the the Deep Purple. Is it the Deep Purple one? It might be the the Purple Records, uh, 1971 through 1978 by Neil Pretty. He goes through all the different albums, and he has a a few quotes from Chaz Watkins, who was one of the engineers on this album. Um, It's a great book to pick up if you're into into Purple Records. He mentions that Kingsway studio where they recorded this always had a problem, so they had to record at night because during the day they couldn't make too much noise based on the building they were in. And he said during the day they would record like, called you know elevator music and then after 6 p.m they'd become like a rock studio and record rock bands Chaz learned a lot from Martin Birch he worked with Martin Birch so he kind of had his uh, him as a mentor uh, and then he mentioned he mentions this one story about Ronnie he says one particular memory of Ronnie Dio the control room looked widthways across one end of the studio so a camera looked down the length of the studio with a monitor in the control room. 
Ronnie was doing a vocal, I can't remember which track, sitting on a stool, and the camera was positioned on him. He said, just got getting a glass of water and went off camera. When he returned onto camera, he sat on the stool and he was completely naked. He just didn't say anything. He just carried on singing as though nothing was unusual. And everyone in the control room was in tears. So that's during the, this, the making of Butterfly Ball. He just stripped um, naked and sings. I wonder which song it is. Well... Well, yeah, um, number one, I'm wondering, yeah, now I'm wondering which song he sang in the buff, which now that completely changes my, I wonder if it's love is all, you know, maybe he had to like, <laughs> to sing that high, he had to just like, you know, he's like, oh, my, my balls are too constricted, you know, and, and then he was like, you know, swinging free and he could just like hit those high notes. And, I guess the real question is, do you want to change it to your ratings? Knowing that? <laughs> <laughs> the 10. Exactly. Oh. I want to raise some of my ratings. <laughs> But then, like, I want to know, were they in tears, like, laughing, or were they in tears, like, emotional, like, oh, sitting in a dream, this is beautiful, like, and, or is he just like, <laughs> he's naked? <laughs> or are they, like, crying, like, oh, I'm blind, you know, <laughs> the lead singer from Elf, you know, this. <laughs> so, um, he also mentions that the air conditioning was really loud, and they'd have to turn it off, like, when they did quiet vocals or instruments. Um, and the switch for the AC was behind a burlap flap on the back wall of the studio. And when you lifted the flap, there was a picture of a naked lady on there. <laughs> so there, were, so most people were like, oh, I'll go turn off the AC. Apparently, these horny studio guys were so starved to see a naked lady that they would run across the studio to lift a flap just to see one. I guess in the days before the Internet, that was the best you could do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but he says, recording the Butterfly Ball was a wonderful experience. All these top-notch musicians coming into the studio and Roger producing, writing, and having responsibility for the whole project. So I can imagine it was a cool thing to work on. And then as we talked about, Love Is All was Ronnie Dio's first gold single. Glover said um, about the album, the whole thing was a challenge and a joy. It took around six months to complete, and I worked with some lovely people. Glover also says, I can see a couple of things that might hold it back. Uh, he's talking about the album. I can see a couple of things that might hold it back, primarily my name. The album can't exactly be described as a family album, but then again, it's not anything in the mold of Deep Purple. Um, of course, the album was not received well by rock audiences. They're like, oh, that's kid stuff. And it didn't get a ton of exposure, done a ton of promotion, so it didn't do a ton of sales. Um, uh and then Love Is All was a huge hit. And uh, in this documentary, I'll, I'll post a link to, and it's a link to our own video, so hopefully we don't get banned. Um, this guy, Sasha Distel, who's a French singer, decided he was going to record a version of Love Is All. And he like, and Eddie Harden's like laughing, telling this story because he says um, that they they called him and they wanted just basically the back. They like, could you just send us the backing tracks for it? And we'll put his vocal over it. And he's like, you're not, you're not even going to use your own musicians. You're just going to like take our backing track. And, and uh, he's so Eddie Harden says basically just karaoke at this point, <laughs> like this guy's re-recording the single, but he did. And he had a, he, so he had a number one hit with this song in France. And then a month later, uh, the Ronnie Dio version became a number one hit in France. So um, I do have a copy of it. It's, it's worth checking out yeah, this, this version. Yeah. If you want to hear Love Is All in French um, by, a, by an inferior singer, <laughs> then I've got, the, I've got just the thing for you. Of course. 
<laughs> Here we go. Sasha Distel, Tudlemem. This is him singing it live, though. I think he actually does have a band on this one. Papillon. Oh, this is awful. <laughs> he mentions Papillon a lot more than the original. Like this, this would have like <laughs> totally bombed. <laughs> it like got in my opinion, it got to number one in France. But I think then people just realized, oh, Ronnie Dio is singing it. Let's that'll get to number one now. Oh, look at these background singers come out. <laughs> they look like a bunch of friggin' drag queens. <laughs> I will have the link to this video in the show notes. You should probably check it out if you're interested. It's. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about any of this. Like it, it looks, they look like a bunch of like shares or something. <laughs> it does. It does look like they cloned share. And like this, one... this guy is just like not good. <laughs> it's just like let's just get any like sh like French schmuck and just have him sing this song. Like it's nothing spectacular about it at all. I'm offended. And now he's ballroom dancing with one of the background singers he picked at random. She's got like a helmet on that looks her make look makes her look like an Incan priestess or something. I wonder if our our friend so our our French listener Ian DeRoger, which who I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's how we pronounce it in my French speaking town. Um, he's been very vocal on Twitter about like, listen, I don't I'm not going to listen to this album until I hear you guys talk about it. Um, and I wonder if. If he's ever heard the French version of this song, being a being a French speaker. Well, <laughs> look at his dance moves. <laughs> what the? <laughs> uh, this went to number one. Just proves that like the French have no taste. <laughs> like, I'm so offended. You don't like Jean Claude Belmondo? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's like not singing with any flair. He's like, He's like, it's good French right there. He sounds bored. <laughs> I don't know why I'm leaving this playing. It's just too funny. <laughs> because you want to see me get upset. It, well, that is true. That is good for uh, it's good for the show when you get upset. Why are they clapping so much? Because it's over. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, they gave They just basically coaxed him into an encore. He's like, oh, I'll do another verse. <laughs> All right, make it stop. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear this anymore. I'm speaking for everybody that's listening to this podcast. Uh, you're, so. you're a hero for the listeners. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. After hearing Ronnie. Maybe they didn't know any better. Uh, so given the fact that this album didn't do particularly well, that's when they came up with the idea like, hey, let's do a live concert to generate some buzz for the album. And that's what we'll, we're going to get into next week. When we review the movie. 
Which I don't know what I was looking forward to more, this episode or the movie episode? Well, I think, like, you were... Well, definitely my reaction to the movie, because I still haven't seen it. Right. So I know you were definitely looking forward to that for me. So, so it should be me, interesting to hear to your reaction to the seeing the movie for the first. I can't even imagine seeing this movie for the first time, even though I remember <laughs> distinctly, you know, because like I said, I've been a fan of this. I just looked at my Amazon history. I ordered the DVD for this and received it in 2006. Wow. Uh, where is it? So you've had it for a while. So. Here it is. Order details. Amazon, September 2nd, 2006. I ordered this because it had, must have just come out. And I remember reading about it on Roger Glover's website about his kind of his reaction to this movie in general. And um, yeah, I, I remember my, I had been a fan of this for a long time. At that point, my wife and I had only been together for about four or five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we weren't we weren't even married yet, but. I remember we sat down in our, our apartment in New York and we just sat there and like, we're going to watch this movie. And we're like, holy crap. Not really. And then she was, and then she was like, you, you like this? I'm, <laughs> I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> no, apparently she, not. She enjoyed, she enjoyed it. I think um, <laughs> like, I mean it, the same way that I did and the kind of with a morbid curiosity. Um, mm. But the, like I, like I've said, it's, it's a, it's, one of the most incredible musical performances I've ever seen paired with some of the worst uh, live action things <laughs> you've ever seen. It's, it's a very strange dichotomy. So I'll be interested in looking at that next week. So as, as predicted, we're running a little long with this episode, got a couple of quick news nuggets to go over and history things real quick because we're running long. Mm-hmm. Um, in the news, um, we got. I don't. Did you see about this Bob Ezrin? So his uh, uh, primary wave, I guess, ac- ac- acquired the rights to Bob Ezrin's portfolio. No. So uh, I guess they got the rights to all of his stuff with Alice Cooper, Kiss, Pink Floyd, and then the last two Deep Purple albums. Oh, whoa! So yeah, pretty big, uh, pretty big catalog there. Interesting. He doesn't and, look too happy. <laughs> I I bet this is before he got the check. <laughs> I think he's probably pretty happy. And then um this uh, this this publisher, uh, I think it's what's the name of the publisher? Um Weimer UK, uh, who publishes all these visual biographies. They're releasing one of Ian Gillen now. We've talked about the I think the David Coverdale one, the uh Richie Blackmore one. Mm-hmm. Um so it's going to be kind of a visual biography of uh, Ian Gillen. So it should be interesting. It's completely unauthorized, but if you're interested, you know, should check it out. And then we've got in the news, seg- uh, I'm sorry, in the history segment, a few kind of key dates. I've seen some conflicting information and York Planer, of course, will correct us if we're wrong, but um, the butterfly ball, uh, the, the week this comes out, November 18th through no- November 24th, on November 18th, 1974, the Butterfly Ball is released in the UK. And I think it might have had a December release in the US. Uh, so obviously, great timing and no mistake as to why we're doing this. We're kind of theming our November around Butterfly Ball. And then November 18th, 1989. Oops, that's not it. <laughs> um <laughs> But we've got 
Uh, oh man, if I can do this here. Again, towards the end of the episode, Slip of the Tongue was released. Yeah. Slip of the, that's why I called it Slip It In. <laughs> I was get Slip of the Tongue and Slide It In confused. Yeah, so it was like, um, so, so so it's, yeah, Slide It In, Slip of the Tongue. It's Slip It In and Slide of the Tongue. Exactly. Although Slide of, slide of the Tongue would work too. Slide of the Tongue. <laughs> His picture covered down like, <laughs> I don't want to picture that. <laughs> well, like it or not, at some point you will because he'll make you picture it. Yeah, he, he has a way of doing that. <laughs> Uh, then we've All got right. um, oh, that's butterfly ball already. So we've got the next up is November eighteenth, two thousand six. Jolyn Turner forms Over the Rainbow. And are you familiar with this band? Nope. So Over the Rainbow, you've got JLT there, obviously looking way too serious. Second one in. Can you tell who the second guy from the right is holding the guitar? No, I can't tell. I'm, I'm seeing if I recognize any of these people. I don't think I do. So the drummer, Bob Rodinelli on drums. Oh, okay. Greg Smith on bass. Paul Morris on keyboards. And the man in black, well, they're all in black, holding the white Stratocaster is none other than Jorgen Blackmore, son of Richie Blackmore. That's interesting. So J- JLT goes gets gets the uh, the son of 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 uh, Richie Blackmore to be in this band over the rainbow. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I can kind of tell. Yeah, he's kind of looks like Richie. Same same wig. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can tell he's, he's like it's like a German Richie. <laughs> he looks even more like Richie in this photo. I think on the right there. Yeah, and he's then got that mischievous look on his face. He's very mischievous. Uh, and then in November twenty third, nineteen ninety four, Deep Purple plays three secret shows in Mexico to test their prospective new guitarist, Steve Morse. So they oh, did these three secret shows. They kind of released them. Oh, Deep Purple's playing in Mexico, and. That would have been quite a treat to see one of those shows. Steve Morse's trial by fire to see, is this guy going to work out? And apparently he did. Cause it's how many years, 25 years later and he's still in the band. I love this picture because it's like, <clears throat> like you look at all of them and then you like John Lord is the only one that's just like, screw it. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going gray. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other guys are like Roger Glover's got a hat on. Like Ian Gillen and Ian Pace, like obviously, like must have colored their hair or something. Yeah. I mean, they all look good, but like, and John Lord looks totally badass in this picture. But he does. Know, he's just like he looked badass until the end of his life. I mean, let's face it, he's John Lord always looked like a badass. Yeah. Whether he was rocking those big like like cop sunglasses or or these like kind of John Lennon sunglasses with a goatee, full beard. Fu Manchu, mustache only, it doesn't matter. You always look like a badass. What have you. One of my favorite looks was like his, I think it was his Mark IV, like, you know, 70s porn star look where he'd be wearing that, <laughs> that, denim, that denim shirt, you know, and like... <laughs> that denim that photo shirt. shoot where it's like unbuttoned all the way down to his navel. 
<laughs> Great stuff. These guys. These guys. So that's a wrap. This might be one of our longer episodes, but we covered 20 tracks of the Butterfly Ball, even though some of them, most of them are very short. And uh, mm. if you didn't know anything about the Butterfly Ball, you're either right now interested and going to check it out a little bit more on your own or you're saying yep that's just as dumb and whimsical as i thought it was screw this album <laughs> either way uh i had a blast get, diving into yeah. this album again and uh listening to it in its entirety and um yeah i i've this is one of my like i said one of my top albums of all time i could drive on my way to work in a few hours and listen to this album again like i hadn't just listened to it it's it's always a, a pleasure for me yeah. All right. Well, totally. I guess we'll we'll part ways again until this time next week when we'll be watching the the movie for your first your your inaugural viewing of the Butterfly Ball yeah. movie. I'm very excited for uh, that. Me one. too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will see you next week, my friend. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. I'm like hacking over this beautiful song. <laughs> we gotta get you the cough button. <clears throat> you can just edit that out. <clears throat>